I say convincing, you want to make the audience feel. It doesn't matter if they don't like it. It doesn't matter if they love it. But you want to challenge them on their perception of this is how it should be. Because then, if you make them think, love or hate it, you've given them something different that they can absorb. That was the voice of classical and crossover violinist Gregory Harrington. And I'm Martin Nutty. Welcome to a check-in bonus episode of Irish Stew. Hi, this is Martin Nutty with the Irish Stew podcast, and welcome to a check-in episode. And these are episodes we do with past guests who have done something pretty cool since we had them last on the show. And our guest, Gregory Harrington, is one of the finest musicians to come out of Ireland over the last 30 years. So we're going to start off with a piece of music. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was Uncoolin'. So, Gregory, welcome. Great to have you back on here. And tell me a little bit about that music, why it's meaningful to you. Martin, firstly, it's good, it's good to hear you. Thank you for having me on. It's, it's almost like the snap of a finger since we spoke last, but it's amazing how quickly time flies. Coolin', what a beautiful, poignant Irish melody. I think I chose that one on the recording simply because it was a piece that I grew up listening to. I can't remember whether it was Sunday Miscellany on Radio 1 or because it has been, let's just say quite a while, but growing up when I heard that, it's just, it's a melody and a traditional Irish song that just stuck in my head and I loved it. And I think it was probably one of the first pieces to go on this playlist, this album, as a piece that had meaning for me and a piece that had something that I could bring a little bit of uniqueness to. Yeah, it's just this beautiful memory from childhood. So, voila. You know, it's funny, I was looking at the Wikipedia page for the tune, and it's interesting, all the disputes over where does it come from, how long has it been around, what's the meaning of the name, but like you, it, it was the background music of an Irish childhood in a way. And my father liked to play a lot of traditional music, and he, he did play that tune. Yeah, I think you can go through meanings. Music has this incredible ability to, it's not tied to only one meaning. And it's the meaning that you can emote and bring something absolutely unique. So I think that's where the beauty of music comes. It's a language that you need no alphabet for, whether it speaks to you or doesn't. And if you are an artist and it's your duty to just try and figure out where the uniqueness comes so that you give the audience that that fresh, almost first time feel of hearing hearing this piece. 
Yeah, and this is what I like about your album. Of course, this is part of your the new album, Live from the Irish Repertory Theatre. An interesting choice of music, primarily Irish, as expected, given where it was recorded. But you're spanning a lot of time and a lot of genres. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about how this came to be and what you're thinking was in terms of music selection? Well, I think when Kieran O'Reilly approached me to do this show or performance, it was middle of the pandemic. It was the first time, I think, in months that I had set foot on a stage. And when choosing the rep on the music for this, I had never done Irish music or just a pure concert of Irish music. And I always have included it in performances. And I'm fascinated by this juxtaposition of the incredible contemporary output that we have as a nation, as a small nation, mixed with that rich vein of traditional Irish music that has that is just blows you away. And what I wanted to do, as somebody who was classically based, grew up that way and really never looked or never explored Irish traditional music as I was growing up. I'd heard it, but I wasn't drawn to it in the same way I was drawn to classical. I went on this journey that I just loved. And my attitude was, you know, and it's like anything. If you are a classical violinist and you play piazzola like a classical violinist, you're going to lose it like it's like tango. If you play Hendrix and you just don't get the essence of what raw distortion is on an acoustic instrument, you're missing the essence of Hendrix. So I did what I love to do and just that deep dive of what makes this unique, what makes it traditional, what makes it so deep-rootedly incredible to listen to. And as I say, if you play this as a classical violinist, you lose it. But it's about trying to capture the essence of what traditional music is and the sound that traditional music is through your lens. And in doing that, then you give the audience something unique. So it's figuring out just things that they may not have heard before on a piece that's familiar, whether that's the Swallowtail Jig or The Last Rose of Summer. It's about what I love doing is when you look at the old video recordings of some of the incredible fiddlers and it's just how they held the bow and how they the nuance, this little throw that they did. And from playing with Martin Hayes many years ago at the Irish Arts Centre, observing him and how different it was and just being enthralled by how uh, different people make sound. So I think that's really where it comes from. It's It comes from the curiosity to create something unique on, on material that people find familiar. But it's also you have to communicate such joy or such sorrow or just such emotion in a very artistically true to the form way for any sort of means of having success with it. Yeah, I'm curious, as a non-instrument player of any kind, when comparing, you're obviously classically trained in violin, but when you look at somebody like Martin Hayes, the great traditional Irish violinist, or maybe Colin McAnamara, how different is that technically? If you were to tear it apart, what jumps out about them that I, as a lay listener, wouldn't understand when comparing to somebody that's classically trained versus somebody that's traditional. Yeah, and it's I think it's when, you, when you're putting any genre or any style, I should say, of music, technically, it's the exact same instrument. So a fiddle and a violin, there is absolutely no difference in dimensions or whatnot. The bow is the same. How you hold and your left-hand position, very different in traditional Irish music as a classical musician. The 
what's beautiful is the notation of how it's written and the generations that have gone through playing it, passing it from one to one to the other, is very different. So a dot on a note of Beethoven means something very different to a dot on, on a note of Brahms and Mozart. Whereas in traditional, you just have the tune and the lead sheet, which is the same, almost the same as jazz. But both are just very different ways to get to the absolute same euphoric state of just an incredible musical experience. To the layperson, it's almost the way a violin is played is much more, there's more rules, I think, with how it's supposed to be done. And I think people like classical artists get very shackled with it has to be done perfectly this way. And they, the, the, the perfection that the, the, and that's how it's almost like the harness that, that allows them not to communicate. Um, whereas, and this is only my observation of incredible traditional Irish music players, there isn't that same level on a technical basis of an in-depth technical thing of how they do things. However, the musical form and the heights and that, that they reach to are, is just incredible. So it's very hard to compare the two, even though you're using the same instrument. But the end goal with both is you have to move somebody to tears. You have to move them with that story, no matter what genre you do, whether it's rock, whether it's jazz, whether it's traditional, whether it's classical. And that's where the, the moment of this is organically what I have to say. And it just happens to be that the classical violin or the traditional Irish violin or the, the jazz trumpet is the instrument that I'm choosing to allow my voice to speak. I think Yo-Yo Ma, the great cellist, if he picked up a violin or a piano or a flute, he still would have just been out there because it just happens to be that the cello is his medium of speaking. And I think that's the stage you got to go to. And I'm almost stuck for words because it's describing emotion. And some of these things are there, there to be sensed and to be felt. And it's very hard to put words on it, but it's, you have your obvious differences, but at the core of it, it's if your heart bleeds music, that's what goes through. So speaking of Yo-Yo Ma, I've always been an admirer. Sometimes my perception of classical musicians is, as you put it, they can be very hidebound or very narrow. And Yo-Yo Ma just always struck me as a guy that was like super open to play all sorts of different genres and contributing to that. And it strikes me, you do a lot of the same things. You, you do not shackle yourself into one genre of music and kind of makes for a really interesting listening experience. And that plays out in this album as well, because you go from very traditional on Quillon to you too. All I want is you. So why don't we play a little bit of that and then we can talk. Wonderful.
I love that, Gregory. So talk to me a little bit about the choice of you two. How do they fit into the picture? I think before I do, I just want to go back to one thing we said before we play that. There's this beautiful quote from your man. He said he spent decades learning how to achieve perfection on the cello and strive for that perfection. But he said he never fully achieved it. And once he absolutely let go of that, he said that was the moment when his when he just absolutely communicated. And that's when everything just made so much more sense. And there is that part of, in the classical side of things, of once you let go and let it become an organic story that you're telling, then that's when the audience are moved. Going into U2, Rattle and Hum, it's the 1989 album where they did the collaborations with B.B. King and with Bob Dylan and the Harlem Gospel Choir. It's their exploration of rhythm and blues. And it's a phenomenal album. I think this... I think the reason I love this piece was because when they recorded it, they did a recording with the, I think it's the LSO, London Symphony Orchestra. And the orchestration to that is just so beautiful and it just meshes and melds so well. In that moment, there's a part where the band just turn and they riff and they vamp, which is something as artists, classically, we don't do this at all. And I was trying to capture that where you just capture this exploration of sound and concept and, and textures. Can you just create this little bit of a, a different soundscape, sound canvas within with three instruments to recreate what that band was doing. And like, it's a fun arrangement. And I think the magic is when you're on stage with two artists that are just phenomenal. So Eleanor is a cellist that I, Eleanor Norton is a cellist a one, and a wonderful friend that I, I've worked with for decades. And just this, how she conceptualizes sound is just beautiful to be on stage with. And Philip Shigog is a cellist that I had only met, a recommendation of a conductor that I recorded an album with. And he said, you have to work with Philip. And Philip actually has just done the Star Wars documentary on Obi-Wan and Disney. Cool. He's just, he's one of these forward thinking, just never sees any barrier to creating sound for the purpose of music. And he was just this just energy that comes right out on stage. So it was this wonderful moment where the three of us would speak, speak as in non-verbally speak, and just share ideas. And we had a handful of rehearsals for this. And I think the beauty was that we did things live on stage, in, uh, live when I say live, as, as there was no audience, but it was live, live taping, where we explored things and tried things where we hadn't done them in rehearsal. And what's captured is this uniqueness that is, I think it's, I still think it's pretty cool. Yeah, there's a virtue to a live recording that you just don't get in the studio. No. And you're talking about Yo-Yo Ma just kind of letting go a little bit and allowing, I think what you're saying to some degree is allowing yourself to play a little bit more, to be free a little bit more. That's the moment when you're starting to make. To be imperfect and embracing the imperfection and just trying to see, can you just change one person's feeling uh, that evening? because if one person walks out and says that was such an incredible musical moment that has changed me then your job is done and can you bit by bit do that with audience after audience you know 40 years ago as a pimply faced teenager i went to the national concert hall in dublin and saw yehudi menuhin play fantastic and, and he made a mistake even i knew it was a mistake and to me, 
I always understood him to be like a god and the realization that, yeah, he made a mistake. It didn't bother him. He just kept on going. What else are you going to do in that circumstance? But it just humanized him a lot more for me. And I think, yeah, there's there's a real virtue to being a little bit more relaxed and just enjoying the playing in itself. And sometimes it feels like that can be lost in the classical ferment. Absolutely. Absolutely. Martin, I have a question for you now. So tell me, was that concert with the European Youth Orchestra? It was, no, it wasn't with the European Youth Orchestra. He was accompanied by a pianist that I think, and the name escapes me, but he won the Young Musician of the Year. So it was a duet. But beyond that, I couldn't tell you anything else about this. I will admit not to being a big classical fan at that point in time. I was entranced by it, actually, to tell you the truth. And it changed how I viewed classical music that one night. Yes, just thinking because I remember seeing him in the National Concert Hall, and there was that mo- there was a moment there where I was like, God, were we in the same concert hall at the same time at the same event? Let's not say how long ago it was, but anyway. But no, different concert, but same artist and, and same effect of just transformation and just magic. Actually, one of my favorite classical albums with Yehudi Menuhin, he's playing with Ravi Shankar. I can't remember what the album's called, but it's this blend of. Indian music with classical violin. It's just a stunning piece of work. Yeah. I play that quite regularly. So let's get back to your album. Thank you. Let's talk about another shifting again for you two back to a much more traditional opening track, The Swallowtail, which I absolutely adored. You had me tapping my toes almost instantly. So talk to me a little bit about that choice. Swallowtail and a segue into Drowsy Maggie. I was looking for a forms and just as a standout jig. I love the idea when pieces get stuck in your head, when you just can't let it go, when you can't let an idea you have that's different go. And I think that's what draws me to choosing pieces. If I, and, and I probably have this OCD when I listen to pieces, I could easily listen to, I remember when I was doing Radiohead, okay, computer or, or karma police, I would listen to that five, 600 times. And it's at the end of that, when you've heard it so many times, that's when you actually start hearing that one little thing that's unique that you want to bring out that makes all the difference. Because we can have the superficial listenings, but it's once it comes deeper and organic, then you really figure out what you want to say to it. So it, it comes back to, if I have really strong reactions, really strong feelings about how I want to say something. And I feel different about it. And I feel convincing about it. Now, when I say convincing, you want to make the audience feel. It doesn't matter if they don't like it. It doesn't matter if they love it. But you want to challenge them on their perception of this is how it should be. Because then if you make them think, love or hate it, you've given them something different that they can absorb. So I think that the Swallowtail was just one of these pieces that kept going on in my head and just, I kept singing, I kept doing it. I just felt I was doing it differently. I actually did this in Cincinnati, was it a couple of months ago or a month ago in the Irish Cultural Center there. And like the current show that I'm doing in Arizona and San Francisco, I start the second half with this piece. And every now and again, you get a very Irish audience that they just want to clap and stop, stamp the feet. And my attitude is, I will do that, but I'll also pull it. And I'll also pull it where you don't expect it and just give you a 
different way of listening to it. And there's and that moment where there's the tension between the artist and the uh, and the audience where they're trying to clap and they're trying to take you and you say, no, no, I got this. Have a listen. And at the end, they, like I remember there was a number of people that they came up to me afterwards and they said, I love that piece. And I kept wanting to clap and I want to do it this way. And you kept pulling us back this way. And it was just phenomenal because I didn't expect it. And that's really what, you know, that's that moment where you give them something different and they don't have to like it or they can love it, but it's, you're giving them the choice of this is something you haven't heard before. And that's what I enjoy about every piece of music that you have on this album. There is always something that is a little bit different, a little bit unexpected, a little bit, oh, I didn't think you could go that way. And it really makes your music really interesting to listen to because it's not a paint by the numbers or trying to be, it must be played this way and this way only. So there's always a surprise and a twist and it's really fun. But we've talked about Swallowtail, so why don't we play a little bit of it? Perfect. So talk to me about recording in the empty theater at the rep. How strange was that? Because that kind of fits into a very peculiar place in time that we will look back in years to come. Absolutely. The strangeness that was COVID. Yeah. And how was it trying to perform a traditional concert in a theater with empty seats it was a strange feeling it was a beautiful feeling to actually be on stage so i I will actually say that after february pandemic hit in march i think the last concert i did was february in amsterdam so a month before it's it started and then we're talking about months later so it was being setting foot on stage, putting on some concert gear, getting the mental prep, getting the, the having not done this in months, the emotion that comes out of being liberated to, for want of a better word, because you had no place to let your music out. It was just, it was your, there was no stage. So it was, it was a bittersweet, beautiful feeling of God, I've missed this. God, I've really missed this. So I think that was the thing that struck me first. Kieran O'Reilly is such a wonderful human being. And the team there, Florian and the recording engineers were just 
Wonderful. So they were there. So there's about two or three there. And then I had the good fortune of having my girlfriend sit in the audience for the whole thing. So it was actually a lovely feeling to play for one and to make this just very in the moment, very intimate, that you're just sharing this moment with one other person uh, that can listen to this. And I think that was the first time that she had heard me play because we started dating actually just before the pandemic hit in December, in those couple of months that I was playing, there was nothing in New York or in the US, it was all international. So about 18 months of not knowing really what I did or how I sounded was quite a lovely feeling to explore and share with her because I think that the relationship shifted a little bit of, God, I didn't know you did this in the same way. <laughs> it's because it's very easy to see, oh, you do a video or you play this, but it's the live concert it's the live connection where you create something unique for the audience and that was an audience of one more or less and or, or the boys on the headsets and the lighting guy but it, it was probably a situation we won't visit again it's being in this that this blur of the pandemic is a surreal experience that we will revisit in terms of the effect it had on us but i don't think i don't think we're going to see that that type of moment again so it's it is something to be cherished, actually. And that's why it w we captured a moment in the pandemic where we made live music for the first time. And you, I think you captured that freshness and beauty and exploration and the emotion of not having been on stage and the release and the liberation of being able to communicate through that nonverbal art that you so love. Well, that was certainly the impression that I got. It's really fresh and really enjoyable. And before we go here, can you tell us a little bit about what's coming up? I believe there's a concert in Weill in Carnegie Hall coming up on February 16th. Is that correct? Correct, yes. I'm touring with this album, and the idea is to perform in Irish centres around the U.S. and explore Irish culture that same Irish culture through the different lens of different cities. And it's fascinating because it's such a beautiful way to get to know your own culture through a different lens. So there's that which is recurring. And then on February the 16th next year, I have the beautiful honor of performing in Wild in Carnegie, uh, presented by the Irish Repertory Theatre. This is 20 years since my debut. And it's my fifth performance. I am excited is not really the word. And so it's two halves. The first half is going to be a little bit shorter, piano trio, classical, the pieces that just formed me when I was over here and had just a deep effect on me. And then the second half is going to be that longer half with exploration of, of both cellists and drums, a little bit of Dave Brubeck. There'll be the Cranberries. There'll be, I'm, not, I'm actually, would you believe this weekend, I'm trying to work out the repertoire, but Miles Davis maybe some opera, but just a beautiful journey of pieces that mean such a tremendous amount to me and pieces that I just want to share with everyone in the room. So it's that feeling of creating a beautiful program to share with people you want to tell stories to. And what a beautiful hall to have the privilege to do that. It's just magical. So I'm definitely looking forward to that. It's penciled in on my calendar already. And I have to thank you for taking the time out and just walking us through some of the tracks on this live album. Just share it again. It's live from the Irish Repertory Theatre. Where can we find it? Spotify, Bandcamp, 
under my name. I think anywhere Apple Music, iTunes, even I'm not sure if iTunes exists anymore. Anywhere online, you should be able to find it. Or just as a small point, and I know we've spoken about this, but it's amazing how journey how journeys meld and journeys cross. And my violin teacher, my very first violin teacher, was who I adored, was a very good friend of your dad. So it's when we met and just to go back down that sort of memory and I remember him and just going out to the house and playing some of his violin. So it's, it really is a beautiful full circle that is yet to evolve. But thank you so much for having me on. It does mean a lot because connections and music, it's what makes the world go around and it's what makes us who we are. So thank you. Gregory, it's been a real pleasure. And we're going to play this out with another great tune that seems entirely appropriate for the end of this podcast, The Parting Glass. Mm-hmm.